0: From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. And I'm joined today by co-host Megan Ann Leapsch. Meg works in our office of communications focusing on social justice issues. Meg, how's it going?
1: I'm doing great. How are you, Mike?
0: Oh, I'm good. We just had the chance to talk to one of our all-time spiritual heroes.
1: Yeah, we got to talk with Sister Helen Prejean, uh, Sister uh, Congregation of St. Joseph, um, who is an anti-death penalty advocate and um, passionate criminal justice reformer. Um, It was a great conversation.
0: Yeah, I think probably most of our listeners have heard of Sister Helen, but if you haven't, um, she's 82. She's a total dynamo, incredible energy and passion. She accompanies um, people who are on death row and uh, also is, a, again, is this big advocate uh, against the death penalty. Her book, Dead Man Walking, from... Uh, the early 90s was then turned into a Susan Sarandon movie. She also has a newer book out, a memoir called River of Fire. Uh, we'll link to both of those books uh, in the show notes so you can check them out. Um, so, yeah, we just had a chance to, to chat with her for like for like 45 minutes or so, just about a whole bunch of topics uh, from the state of death penalty advocacy in the US today to some of the great stories she tells to help open people's hearts to the idea of still seeing the humanity uh, and people even who have committed, uh, you know, horrible crimes. Uh, What from the conversation, Meg, uh, really stood out to you the most?
1: I think she's a fantastic storyteller. And I think something she talked a lot about is, you know, relationship building. And then how do you bring people into that relationship, right? Because she, you know, a lot of her career has, consisted of going into prisons, which are places that not most of us go into, um, and then trying to bring that story out to people. Um, and I think she she just uses such beautiful and powerful language to bring people into that, that story and, and make people think about the systems that we're part of in a very different way.
0: Yeah, so I know when I hear Sister Helen talk, I like immediately want to just like join her however I can and get involved because she has that, that energy and that sense of inviting you in and wanting to, to join in the fight. Um and so we want to make sure folks who listen, if you feel similarly, that you'll have a chance to, uh, to also get involved by maybe connecting with some of the stuff um, the Jesuits are working on in terms of capital punishment. Meg, that's one of the, the topics you write about and, and put out resources on. So maybe you could let folks know how uh, they could get involved uh, if they feel similarly inspired after today's show.
1: Yeah, so if you're interested in taking action with us, with the Jesuits and, and our network, you can go to jesuits.org slash AMDG. We'll have some resources. Um, you're able to send an email to President Biden, for example, um, to ask him to end the federal death penalty. And we also have some other resources, some other stories about criminal justice, um, some prayers um, to, to kind of go deeper into this this issue.
0: All right, so without any further ado, here is our conversation with Sister Helen Prejean. Well, Sister Helen Prejean, welcome to AMDG. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. How are you doing today?
2: I'm doing great today. I'm doing really great. Uh, you know, May, it's May in New Orleans, the jasmine is blooming. The whole block is filled with the smell of this sweet jasmine, and May is a and the old uh, the oleanders are blooming, and the magnolia trees are blooming. And since I've been home with this COVID, and I haven't had to get on planes like for a year, I have a bird feeder, and I got flowers growing, and and I'm um, it's a creative time. And you're gonna flip at this, but it didn't stop the mission and ministry at all, I've done over 145 speaking engagements in the US and around the world in this year because of COVID, because you can just Zoom to a place. I began to realize how time-consuming the travel was. Like if I had a a speaking engagement in Minneapolis, we're talking three days because you're talking a day to get there, Then a day to do the events and all, and then to fly home. And now I could be at Minneapolis in the morning. I can be in Chicago at noon. And so the ministry has continued. And uh, I thought it was going to go dead. But Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit.
0: Do you, do you like the zoom? Like, are you getting used to that? We're, we're on a zoom right now, uh, not, a, not like a live event, but are, are you, have you gotten adjusted to that format?
2: Yeah. Cause you know what i, I found out uh, Mike is the stories that I tell, I take people with me into places. They are never going to go into execution chambers, take them into the inside workings of, well, the theory of the death penalty in one hand, but then in actuality, what it means in the lives of real people, uh, mothers burying their children after they've been executed. It, through this story, see this, I'm a servant of the stories I'm realizing because I've been a witness. I've been, I've accompanied six human beings to execution, been with their families as they buried them afterwards. And I've been with the victim's family and seeing the, the uh, hypocrisy really and moral bankruptcy of the state offering them that to heal them, they're going to give them a front row seat where they get to watch while the state kills the one that killed their loved one and saying that's going to give them their favorite word, closure or peace and just been there with people in all these experiences. So what happens with the Zoom is Once people are really within sound of the story, it's kind of like everything else drops away and the story has real power. So I have found that Zoom does not inhibit the story.
0: Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. I, I know people have talked about in the pandemic, like how COVID has revealed inequalities or revealed things that are true about this country and the world um, that maybe have been true a long time, but just not on the surface, but maybe we've learned about them. What, From your perspective, what truths about America do you think the pandemic has revealed?
2: Absolutely, hands down, the difference in health care. And people of color who do not get health care died at three times, or maybe more the rate of people that have health care, hands down. Uh, And secondly, poorer people that don't have broadband are just eliminated from all the means of connecting with people through this. Huge connections right off the bat about about that. Um, One of the things, too, that COVID revealed, which is this is staggering. This is a kingdom of God thing that has happened. uh, Is the problem was so big and so per- pervasive, with this pandemic coming and people dying, it was so overwhelmed every system that I think it caused a change, even in the way the election went, that Biden was elected, uh, because it so knocked out every one of the the ways of operating in the systems, and if we without a creative leader. could immediately see the pandemic for what it was, which means you trust science, and begin immediately to take emergency measures and to summon all the the, um, financial sources through the Defense Production Act to get the vaccinations to people, you're going to have an economy that was going to tank. And that's just exactly what happened. And we got in such disarray that I think it brought people to the polls. We had more participation in this recent election than we have, I don't know, maybe numbers that we've never had before, and brought us Joe Biden as president. And now, look at the reform measures that are coming out of his administration. First, the COVID-19 relief package, and now, Looking at infrastructure, not just as roads and bridges and airports, but the human infrastructure, childcare, universal education for young children, community colleges, human infrastructure. And uh, it's just amazing changes because something really big happened to us.
1: So capital punishment has, you know, been been in the news a lot lately, um, particularly at the, the start of this year, we had a rush of federal executions, um, and they were the first federal executions um, in 17 years. Um, but at the same time, you know, Virginia recently abolished the practice of the death penalty. And I think that in our public landscape, we're having a lot more conversations about criminal justice reform more broadly and anti-death penalty advocacy, especially among young people. So I'm curious how you're kind of seeing the landscape of anti-death penalty advocacy right now. Um, you know, are are we moving in the right direction on this issue?
2: Yeah. Well the only right direction for us of course is away from the death penalty that and and here's what the whole Trump bar slew of executions exhibited. What it revealed was the basic flaw that has been in the way that the Supreme Court set up the death penalty in Gregory Georgia in 1976. Because why did Trump through the agency of his attorney, General William Barr kill 13 people? Because he could. Because one of the flaws, then the way the Supreme Court set it up is you give agency and discretion to prosecutors to seek death or not. And the truth is, if you don't have a prosecutor from square one at a trial that decides not to go for the death penalty, nobody's going to die. But that discretionary power in the hands of prosecutors is what makes the death penalty possible. And it's coupled with a criteria that, criterion that nobody understands. And that criterion is, you don't give the death penalty for ordinary murders, not your garden variety murder, whatever the Sam Hill that means, only for the worst of the worst. And what's the understanding behind worst of the worst? Well, these are the crimes that by their nature that are so outrageous you know what, and that the character of the person who does them by their nature are so evil and so irreformable that we can't even put them in prison. We have to, cause we, they will kill other inmates. It's their nature, they're natural born killers. And that's the criteria, the worst of the worst and coupled with discretion. So why after a hiatus of 17 years did we suddenly have 13 human beings die in federal executions because Trump had the discretionary power to kill? And so he did. And it, it highlighted that it made it so clear. And then when we look at the pattern in the states, you just see, look at the counties where you have prosecutors that want to go for death. And they are side by side with prosecutors and other counties that never go for death. And if the Supreme Court found the death penalty unconstitutional in the Furman decision in 1972, because it was arbitrary and capricious in its application, is it not still that? There was no way that you could ever set guidelines that were ever gonna be able to hone it down to just a few guidelines where juries are gonna be able always and everywhere to be able to say, Okay, this person deserves death and this person doesn't. The, and the Trump executions really highlighted that. At the state level, what we're finding out, we, we are watching the death penalty be shut down. Execution chambers are going silent. Like in my state, Louisiana, we killed eight people in eight and a half weeks in the 1980s. It had a real political swerve to it because politicians were getting elected right and left on tough on crime measures and making the people afraid. There are some people like I described who are so bad and evil. We got it. The only thing we can do is terminate their lives and coupling that with, oh yeah, and we're doing this as justice for the victim's family. And now we just see state after state, Virginia was a big deal. Virginia was the first ex-slave state, the first ex-Confederate state to shut down the death penalty. And I think it only happened in Virginia because you see, you know how Vatican II told us, look at the signs of the times, look at the movements that are happening. Where's God in this movement? Where's God not in this movement? And Black Lives Matter. The killing of George Floyd, the waking up of the nation about systemic racism in in policing, the taking down of the Confederate statues of people like we did in, in New Orleans of Robert E. Lee. There was Lee Circle here in New Orleans where Lee is facing the North, facing the enemy. And why was he being held up as a hero? What he actually did was keep slavery in place fighting a war to keep slaves in place. And so you have Confederate statute. all this happened in Virginia, which was has been killing people, executing people since 1806. have executed more people than any state for long, long years, 400 years of executions. And executions and that harsh, that's the apex of a very harsh penal system came right out of slavery, came right out of plantation owners and white people being afraid when slaves were freed. And so you have racism that infects the death penalty, the penal system, Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, who are, who was put in jail massively, prison massively for drugs, Black people, people of color, and changing drugs from Uh, A misdemeanor to a felony, as Michelle Alexander explains in her book, The New Jim Crow. So we have a change of consciousness that's been coming in the country and the states are shutting it down. And Virginia is just an example. Nevada might be close right this very moment at shutting it down. Colorado shut it down. I mean, you just look at all the states one by one. But as Amnesty International points out. When something changes in a society, first you look at the practice. The last thing that happens is you change it on the books. And I I just want to say when you're ready to talk about this, the evolution within the Catholic Church has happened in the same way.
1: So what. What steps do you see forward in this movement? You know, how how do we get to changing on on the books, both at, at the state level, but also at the federal level as it relates to, you know, criminal Well,
2: federal level on. is going to be up to Biden largely. And I believe and he's already stated, do you know, this was the first presidential campaign we had where we had candidates who spoke, who said they were against the death penalty? It never happened before. And that's because the consciousness in the people is changing. There are a number of factors of why the people are waking up that the death penalty doesn't really help anything. In fact, it hurts a lot because it's very, very costly. All those resources, millions of dollars going in to kill one person and all the other things you're neglecting at risk, kids, health care, housing, to pour it into the killing of one person. And people, I mean, you know, are realizing even those who are fiscally conservative realize it really doesn't benefit society. People are gonna be just as safe if a person's in prison. That's one thing. Another thing that's really changing it. And see, all of this is just about educating people about this, bringing it to their consciousness. It's all about that. good Marshall, first, African-American Supreme Court justice said a lot of Americans say they support the death penalty, but educate them on it and they're not going to support the death penalty. And that's that is the movement. That is what has to happen. The other thing that's really waking up people is the huge number of mistakes we've made of putting the wrong people on death row, going to trial and finding them guilty. And in fact, they were innocent. Plenty, plenty mistakes. And that's related because it's only poor people that go to trial for their lives. Rich people get really good lawyers and DAs will think 50 times before they go on publicly and try to go for a death sentence. Only poor people. Often public defenders overworked, underpaid, no resources, truth doesn't come out at trial. We have so far in counting 185 wrongfully convicted people who were put on death row, sometimes for 30 years. Glenn Ford in Louisiana, he was on death row wrongly for 30 years. Came out, had cancer, year later died. Years and years of people's lives because we made a mistake. We made a mistake. We made another mistake because the system is broken. And I mean, it's staggering because for every nine executions of the 1,500 plus people we have executed since we put death back, for every nine, one has had to be freed because we made a mistake. So can you imagine going to get your airline ticket and they said, we have to give you this little alert now, just got to share with you that there's a one in nine chance your plane's going to go down in flames. Who in their right mind would book a ticket with that airline company? But yet with human lives, all the mistakes and people are seeing this, see? And I got to tell you, when I first got involved with visiting a man on death row and getting involved with the whole issue, I thought it would be a fluke that an innocent person could possibly go to death row and be executed or get close to execution or because I thought we had the best court system in the world. No, no, we don't have the best court system in the world. We have a very racially biased. It's overwhelmingly when white people are killed that the death penalty sought, not when people of color are killed. It's broken in a lot of ways. And the appeals court, I thought the way the appeals court would work is if you made a mistake at trial, the truth didn't come out, Well, the appeals courts would just take everything fresh and look at it and say, oh, well, you should have had a DNA test. Or, oh, that jailhouse snitch who claimed that you killed confessed to him that you would have a way of really questioning whether or not that jailhouse snitch got a deal with the prosecutor to say that so the prosecutor could win the case. And the appeals courts have these procedural bars, these gates come up. After you leave trial, and if you don't have a really, really good lawyer by your side that raises formal objections that's written in the transcript, appeals courts can't even take up the issue. So the appeals courts are stymied and, and, and have boundaries around them, which it's not a system of justice. So you have people, I have a man right now that I've been accompanying. For 19 years, Manuel Ortiz is from El Salvador, and he's innocent as the day is long, and he's going on 29 years on death row in Louisiana because he can't get an appeals court to be able to really look at the issues and get his evidence in because of the procedural bars where they won't let it end. So what made us think and that we as human beings were going to be able to set ourselves up in this godlike with that authority, without the wisdom, and without even the right spirit in our souls to be able to be the arbiters of life and death. So there's real change coming. And the road forward, restorative justice, not punitive justice that exiles people into prison for years and years and separates families and diminishes life, uh, does not respect the dignity of life, doesn't restore life. That's going to be the path. And I have to tell you, I, I have a lot of hope because I see that people are waking up. And I feel, I feel blessed, you know, to be in this ministry where the job is to wake up people. And look at our own church, our Catholic church. It did take, uh, well, like 1,500 years of dialogue, but in August 2018, you had Pope Francis sealing it in the books. That was the last step in the Catholic Catechism. Under no conditions, no matter how grievous the crime, we can never turn over to the state the right to take life. That was a lot of dialogue that went into that with the people of God being the ones through experiences going into prisons and then through those experiences of consciousness changing, oh, my God, these people in prison are human beings. Oh, my God, these people in prison can change. Oh, my God, look at the difference education makes in the life of people if we educate them, and much less going into death row and into execution chambers. And, and, you know, that was the heart of my dialogue with Pope John Paul about the death penalty. And it was your holiness. I meet a lot of Catholics who say they're pro-life, but by that they mean innocent life. By that they mean they're against abortion, the other issues that we usually list with pro-life. But not when it comes to the death penalty, because they draw a line and say, oh, but they're guilty. So they deserve what they get. And I said, your holiness, this is to Pope John Paul II. It was in 1997. It was in a letter right to him, which I hear from Vatican officials, went right into his lap. And I said, when I'm walking with a man to execution. And he is, he has leg irons on, he's handcuffed closely to a belt around his waist. He's surrounded by six guards. And they're going to walk him down this hall and strap him down render him completely defenseless, and kill him. Where is the dignity in this death? Does the Catholic Church only uphold the dignity of innocent life? Is there no dignity in a human being, even if he's guilty or she's guilty of a crime? Can you help our church uphold the dignity, even lives that have guilt in them for a crime? Can you help our church do that? And Pope John Paul did a very significant thing and paved the way for Pope Francis's final sealing of it by changing the catechism. In 99, when Pope John Paul II was in St. Louis, he, for the first time, put the death penalty in with other pro-life issues and said no to abortion, no to euthanasia no to physician-assisted suicide, and no to the death penalty, which is cruel and unnecessary. And then he added, even those among us who have done a terrible crime have a dignity that must not be taken from them. Because when you look at the traditional teaching of the church on the death penalty, it was always about defending society. It was never about this thing of There's some crimes by their very nature. Only another death will justify or could could get justice for what happened. It was never about that. It was about defending society. And so St. Augustine, 5th century, went first one to depart from the words of Jesus, the nonviolent Jesus. The violent can be coerced with the sword. That's 5th century. But what was going on in his day? The Goths, the Visigoths were banging down the gates of Rome and plundering the people. And they, they had to turn then to government to defend society, but it was always defense. And Thomas Aquinas uh, in the 12th century, uh, who said like the government, we can uh, entrust over to civil government to contain violent people uh, it's like cutting off a gangrenous limb. It's to defend society. But boy, when you then narrow it down and into here's a man being strapped down and killed, and we have a way to defend society in prison, you cannot morally justify it. And I think that was the crunch point uh, for Pope John Paul and the popes. But it's the people who wake up, and the spirit moves in the people. And, and Vatican II defined our church as the people. So the spirit moves in the people, the people go into the prisons, the people have the experiences. And then the people in discerning how the spirits moving through consciousness and conscience change. And that's how we get change in the church.
0: I'm sure you've talked to so many Catholics over the years who are skeptical, Um, but you're also mentioning how your stories can take people places, how you can see this spirit move and and change people's hearts. I'm wondering like, what stories or or facts, it's probably stories, right? More than facts, you go back to over and over that seem to, to soften people's hearts.
2: Because you bring them there. See, people deep down are compassionate. People are good. If people are made to be afraid, then people can say, oh, yeah, I'm for the death penalty. Or, yeah, I'm for torturing those people in Guantanamo because they might have information about those terrorists. And then there's this saying from Latin America, what the eye does not see, the heart cannot feel. So by telling stories, see, there were books out before Dead Man Walking that had facts in it. They had statistics in it of why the death penalty wasn't a deterrent. And yeah, it was racially biased. But facts don't change people's hearts. Now, when facts, when information is combined with story, and there, when I wrote Dead Man Walking, I'm going to just say flat out in the providence of God, I had this really great editor at Random House, Jason Epstein, and he helped me shape that story. And when I sent him the first draft of Dead Man Walking, uh he and he looked at it and we looked at it together he said nobody's gonna read your book because you are so into the human rights of this person and why this person should be executed but you wait far too long to talk about the crime i mean this man patrick sonier and his brother killed two teenage kids in cold blood and left their dead bodies in a sugarcane field there in louisiana if within the first 10 pages, you don't bring people into this crime and your own horror at it, and then gradually take them over into that execution chamber and see now how we as a society gonna to respond to that killing, nobody's gonna read your book. And then he also pointed out that to put all the important information about how the death penalty works, how it's only poor people, how it's when you kill white people, Way into footnotes. Only scholars are going to read footnotes. The secret of being a good writer is you got to tell the story, and your reader's going to read story, and along the way you put in all the important information you want them to have. So in Dead Man Walking, I do two things. I take it, the reader with me into the the criminal, the one who did the crime, and the punishment of the criminal and expose what the death penalty really is. But then on the other side, what about the victims and the suffering of the victim's family? The real hero in Dead Man Walking is the father of young David LeBlanc, 17 years old, who was killed by Patrick Solier and his brother. He's the real hero because he really takes took me through his own journey into forgiveness and what that really means. Because he had everybody around him. This was all in the 70s. The death penalty had just been reinstituted in the Supreme Court. We had politicians in Louisiana that were running for office and bragging about how many death penalties they got if they had been prosecutors. And all around him, Lloyd LeBlanc had people telling him, Lloyd you got to be for the death penalty or look like you didn't love David. Culture plays such a part in how we think and how we feel about things. And then the deep south, which has always, you know, had a harsh penal system. And but then when I met this man, prayed with this man, we'd go. He kept vigil before the Blessed Sacrament from four to five in the morning on Friday mornings Prayed with him, then had breakfast with him, then got to be friends with him. And he shared his journey. He said, People, he said, sister, people think forgiveness is weak, like you're condoning it. But he said, here's what happened to me. I wanted to kill those two brothers with my bare hands, but anger was taking over my life. I've always been a kind person. I've always loved to help people, and I was losing it. I was snapping at my wife and making a cry. The poor woman, she almost lost her life just by losing David. She has to visit his grave every day just to make it through her day. And he said, I was struggling so hard. I was praying. And he said, sometimes my wife, Yule, and I go to different Catholic churches. I wanted to hear from some pulpit, some priests say, about the gospel of Jesus and that Jesus had said we have to forgive. And I couldn't hear it anywhere. And, then, and he said to me, and it was true. It was a big, big, big mistake I made. And sister, you weren't there for me either. I didn't have you to talk to. And I was staying away from the victims' families because I was scared to death of them. Scared of their anger, scared of their rejection. But then he, with the grace of God, he made his way and he came to a point and when he told me this this big point of illumination of revelation he put out his hand like you say stop and he said then i said to myself uh-uh they kill my boy but i'm not going to let them kill me and he set his face to go down the road of forgiveness never condoning but even if you look at the word forgive it means to give before. In other words, not to let the integrity of your soul, the love in you, the kindness in you, be consumed in a hatred where you lose who you are. Forgive. And Lloyd LeBlanc exemplifies that, and I hold him up as the hero of Dead Man Walking. So when people encounter Dead Men Walking, they encounter a journey, and. I didn't know the power of a book. But when people are reading, they're not debating with anybody. They're quiet. They're using their imagination. And you can truly descend into these very deep issues within your own soul, the outrage at the crime and the feeling for innocent people killed in their families. And then on the other hand, watching what it means to turn over to government, this right to life. And what it means to take a conscious, imaginative human being out of a cell where they've been waiting for 20 years and deliberately to kill them. And it's the death certificate after an execution that gives it away. Forget the legalized terms and how you're justifying it. Cause of death on the certificate after an execution says homicide. And that means human beings killing other human beings. And the truth of it's told on the desative. I
1: once heard, um, you know, prison explained or, or defined as this this place, an inhuman place where I found profound humanity. And I think, you know, something that you're talking about is these connections and relationships that you've built, um, not only with perpetrators of, of crimes and people who have been sentenced to death, but also with victims' families. And these are really difficult relationships to build. So I'm, I'm wondering how you went about building these relationships within a system that I think is, is inherently set up to separate um, and, and to prevent connection in many ways.
2: Yeah, first by physical separation. Prisons are really places of exile remove separating families, millions of people separated because of throwing people into prison, physical separation, and then the public. And because people don't meet real people in prison, they've got these stereotypical notions fed by all these crime things that they see on TV, you know, of how fierce prisoners are and how cruel they are to each other and all that. I've only met human beings in prison including on death row. And, well, of course, my deepest relationships have been in a company, people on death row. And granted, most of them were guilty of doing unspeakable crimes. But the minute you look into a human being's eyes and you, you, can, you have that realization, at least I did, this person's worth more than that one act. That's not all this person is. Did you know even at trials that when a prosecutor is even going for the death sentence and maybe there's just been this atrocious crime a person has done that that prosecutor can never point to that person and say that's an evil person? They can never attribute evilness to the person, only to the act. And there's nothing like meeting human beings. This is what needs to happen to cross the bridge or build the bridge between races in this country. Look how segregated we still are socially in church in so many ways of not being with other people of different races and ethnic groups. You know, we kind of tend to live in our own little bubbles. And even Martin Luther King had said Sunday when people go to church is the most segregated day of the week, time of the week. So we have to, in a lot of ways, prisoners, yes but also white people in the suburbs and people more in the inner city. How can we build these bridges together? Being with immigrants, look at the image you can have of immigrants that, that uh, ex-President Trump just talked about them as rapists and drug dealers and people who wanna come in and hurt us and take our jobs. And those are such negative, demonized images of people. That's not real, people. And that's what I love. The gospel is about we live on the ground and we reach out to each other as human beings and brothers and sisters. And that's that's the big task before us with prisons. Yes. And yes, there is penal reform that is beginning to happen um, and changes. We have a D.A. now in New Orleans, Jason Williams, African-American man, declared when he ran, I'm not gonna seek the death penalty. That's also what happened in Virginia. You had district attorneys beginning to run saying, I'm not for the death penalty. And that shows change of consciousness in the people. And then Jason uh, Williams is freeing people from prison like young people who were sent there for these long sentences. There's a whole group now working in Louisiana called Unjust Punishment. Why send a young person to prison that had a residue of marijuana in his pocket and put him in prison for 20 years? It's just so disproportionate. And so there's waking up going on. And when there's waking up going on, the spirit of God is present in us and helping us and um so I believe we are beginning, we are just beginning the road of reform in our prisons more to a path of restorative justice and not punitive.
0: Sister Helen, in a couple of weeks, uh, the Jesuits are launching what's called uh, the Ignatian Year. It's the 500th anniversary of St. Ignatius getting hit in the leg with a cannonball, which <laughs> right. uh, th- then led to his, uh, you know, his his long convalescence, which, you know, was where he had his, uh, you know, experience of conversion and then kind of turned from being a a knight to, you know, to following God and eventually founding the Jesuits. Uh, I'm curious for you, like when you think of those cannonball moments, do you have like those moments, big or small in your life, you look back on and think like, Oh, it was kind of after that moment that things were different for me that that, that were part of my own uh, conversion or ongoing faith journey.
2: I sure do. I mean, I just wrote about this in River of Fire, you know, the subtitle is Be- On Becoming an Activist, or Being a Participant uh, in the Issues of My Day. And there was, it. I call it the waking up moment. It's called the lightning chapter. Um, and it had to do with understanding the gospel of Jesus. And for a long time, my prayer life I prayed for poor people and struggling people, thinking it was God's job for the big problems of the world, saying I was apolitical. I wasn't getting involved in all that messy corrupt politics stuff, and, and waking up that the gospel of Jesus was about doing justice. And it was a single line of a talk from this great nun, Marie Augusta Neal, a sister of Notre Dame de Namur. And she was talking to us about connecting our spiritual lives with justice, which I've been resisting saying, we're nuns, we're not social workers. How are we going to take on all these social issues? And she said, Jesus, preach good news to the poor. And I thought I knew what was coming next. Like every hair of your head is numbered and you are suffering now with Christ on the cross, but one day you'll have a great reward. And she said, good news to people who were poor was that that, it wasn't God's will for them to be poor. It was a human system set up and they had a right to strive and to struggle and to resist for what was rightfully theirs, to have dignity as human beings. And when she said that line, I guess I had been waiting, I had been struggling, with the whole thing of putting this justice and getting involved in political stuff and all that. And it came into place for me. And I came away from that conference, came back to New Orleans, immediately started getting on a bus and going into the inner city. And that led to my going and living there in the St. Thomas housing projects here in New Orleans and working at a place at Hope House where African-American People became my teachers. For the first time, I saw the other America. I saw how it worked when you didn't have health care. I saw what it meant to go to such a poor public school that you could drop out as a junior and you come to the adult learning center and you can't read a third grade book. I saw. And they taught me. It was the first time I heard, learned about white privilege, heard about the racism that's in every system, including linguistic racism. And so we open up the dictionary and we read the definition of white. And then we read the definition of black. Linguistic racism, white, pure, white, good, black, black ball, blackless, black bad, even in the language. And I learned, and it was in that soil there among poor and struggling people, my teachers, where one day I stepped out of that adult learning center and I got this invitation. It was casual. And it was a friend coming out of the uh, Louisiana Coalition of Jails and Prisons, had a little clipboard, had a little project. Everybody Chava Colon was meeting on St. Andrew Street that day saying, hey, you want to be a pen pal? And so he comes to me and he says, hey, you want to be a pen pal to somebody on death row? And I say, sure, I could do that. It was an English major. I could write some nice letters. Never dreaming I was going to be in that execution chamber and watching a man be electrocuted to death by the state of Louisiana. But that's the way God works with us. Maybe if I had known what was waiting for me, At the end of that road, I never could have said yes to writing that letter to Patrick, Sonier in 1982. But that's the way God works. And it's like you put your little boat into the current and you start going. And then, you know, the path is made, but you don't have the blueprint all ahead of time, but the experiences taught me. And there I experienced the deep humanity and dignity even of guilty people, and then came out of that execution chamber that night and then had that moral imperative, my soul on fire with what I'd seen and what I experienced, what I'd learned, and that moral imperative then to share the story, which I still do, which I'm doing with you now. I love that
1: image that you use of putting the boat in the current and and following the current. And I think in, in the spirit of that, I want to zoom out a little bit for our, our last question. You know, last year, you wrote a letter to Pope Francis expressing your concerns over this very deep wound at the, the heart of the church, the way that the church treats women. And you write about how women's ways of imaging God are muted. So I'm curious, you know, how you would see your ministry changing if, if women's voices were unmuted um, and, and how we can kind of go about, uh, you know, achieving that in, in the global church.
2: Yeah, well, first of all, just to say, uh, Vatican II defined the church as a pilgrim church. It means we're always on the way. So look, here in the death penalty issue, 1,500 years of dialogue and experience happening. Church used to hold that slavery was okay, quoting from the epistle of Paul, slaves obey masters. We're going to get it about women too. We're very much in a current because it's based on something that's false. Because when women are baptized, we are baptized into and have the image of God in us, just like men. And it's just pure sexism that women are not part of policymaking or leaders of faith standing at the, in the sanctuary that, that women cannot preach. They have a little thing called, we're going to get away, only the priest can preach. Only the priest can, only males actually can, can read the gospel. Uh, we have male deacons um, proclaim the gospel we're gonna change because it's just not based and rooted in truth and the truth of the gospel about the inherent dignity of women. And um, so I wrote that letter knowing that change is possible and it is going to come. It hasn't changed my mission in any way. And one of the things I said to Pope Francis is I have preached in churches, in synagogues. I have before the United Nations, before. And I can't preach in my own church. I can give a thing called a little reflection after communion. And that's got to change. That's not according to the gospel of Christ. And it's not really befitting the dignity of women. Now, it, it, you, as they say, it's almost a cliche, you don't turn a cruise ship around with just one swift um, shift of the tiller. But it is going to change. See, and I believe now in the movement. I believe that movement brings about change because I'm witnessing it with the death penalty. Same thing about gays. I mean, the actual, if you look at the Vatican document, it's terrible saying that gays are intrinsically defective people. What? And you see there again, the experience of the people of God, the census fidelium of the faith. Who experiences gay people as intrinsically defective beings? God, they're beautiful human beings are human. And there the experience is going to keep bubbling up. It's going to keep bubbling up. And it's going to change. And so hope is an active verb. You gotta be engaged, you gotta be involved to have hope because that hope runs through you. You feel the life course coming through you when when you put your hand on a rope, engage in justice in some way. If you're standing on the sidelines and looking and just trying to process all this information, you can feel paralyzed. But the Diet we one of the gifts Vatican II gave us was To affirm that every human being has a conscience. And it is conscience that makes us speak out and raise questions. And when we love our church, when we love our democracy, we speak out when we come to recognize that we are not living up to the ideals that we were meant to live out of, either out of our Constitution, out of the gospel of Jesus. We speak up and we join in community and the dialogue. And the dialogue eventually with the Holy Spirit flapping her wings over us is going to bring it to fruition. It means patience and staying in it until the change comes. But integrity means speaking truth. And so when I began to speak truth on the death penalty, I had an archbishop in New Orleans that was sending priests to death penalty trials to tell Catholics they could vote for death. And, but I just kept at it, speaking the truth, going to the people, beginning to write, to get it out there, trusting in the goodness of people. That, and I found most people had never even reflected for one minute on the death penalty. It was kind of this knee jerk, well, we look terrible crime. Of course they deserve to die but bring them into the truth of it and they respond. And so that's going to happen with women in the Catholic Church. And you notice that steps are beginning to be taken. Can women be deacons? They're looking into it. You read those epistles of St. Paul, you know women were deacons. You know it only happened out of culture and patriarchy that women were excluded more and more from leadership positions. But Too many women leaders are present in the church for that not to change, and I'm happy to be a part of it, very happy to be a part of the community of faith, where we're in there, the gospel of Jesus is what calls us and grounds us, and we stay at it.
0: Well, Sister Helen, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you for your... Your gospel witness and your active hope—just so inspiring to to listen to you—and just know of our prayers for you uh, as you continue your mission.
2: Well, thank you. It was always a joy. Uh, I love the whole, you know, the discernment of spirits of Ignatius. That's an active part of my prayer life, and I love, I love Jesuits. (laughs)
0: Well, that's good. We're going to put that right on our uh, website—an endorsement. So, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks again.
2: Feel free. Thank you, Mr. Mr. Allen. All right. Look, you two, that was really great. I love talking to you. It was wonderful questions. Well, thank you. Okay. All righty. Onward. Take care. You too. Bye-bye.
0: AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States, and when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting Jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire.